Hey guys, this is Tim Powell from the Minerals and Royalties Authority. I recently sat down with Stéphane Lemoy, the CEO of the SLU Enterprise, who's working on building a new marketplace specifically for the Permian Basin that'll enable investors to make standardized and securitized ESG investments into Permian Basin exploration. Let's jump into the episode and hear more of what Stéphane had to say. All right, Stéphane, welcome on to uh, my podcast. Looking forward to catching up. Tim. Excited to discuss with you today. So I had the extreme pleasure of meeting you spontaneously uh, about three, four years ago, right when you were incubating the idea of SLU and knew it was something special, was hanging around the hoop for a while and have formally come on to run business development for SLU. So uh, I, I really think this is a, a fascinating and disruptive venture that you're, you're building and I'm, I'm uh, proud and excited to be a part of it. So I want to bring that to my audience here today and really get into the details, your background, and really talk all things Permian, finance, ESG, and how it all integrates together uh, and how uh, SIU can provide uh, a lot of solutions for some of the challenges faced today. So to paint some context, you have a very interesting background it started in the asset management world, in the asset structuring world, as a, as a principal, as a broker, and you've looped back now to be an entrepreneur and a CEO of oil companies and, and also some other energy transition vehicles. So start with you know, your background with Amundi, with Elliott, et cetera, and then we'll, we'll get into the, the headspace of an asset manager and institutional investor today. But a little background for those who don't know you. Thank you, Tim. So yes, I was born in France, and uh, France is a, a very large asset management country in the, in the top five in the world. And um, I am a mechanical and mathematical engineer by uh, training. And uh, then I, I became um, an asset manager with Rothschild Bank, investing in, uh, in resources fund. And then I became the chief investment officer of uh, what has now become Amundi, the largest uh, asset manager in Europe. And uh, yeah, what, what's happening when you are chief investment officer of company managing $1.2 trillion is that uh, if you want only 1,000 lines in your portfolio, they're going to be $1.2 billion. It's, that's a lot of money for one single investment and you need to have 1,000 of them. So investing to make a difference in, in Standard & Poor's uh, 500 stocks or bonds is not going to work because if you do like everybody else, well, you're going to have an average performance. Well, at, at a high level, right? Um, you, you've mentioned to me, the tricky line that asset managers try to dance is you you don't want to just invest into indexes because you're you're not going to have any outsized performance in the market but to become a specialty investor you need the expertise and you don't have the staff to do that nor the time and so do you do you invest into specialty markets and end up investing incorrectly or at the wrong time of the no, cycle or you no. get beat by the specialists and so that's the trick right and so you've talked about standardization and marketplaces being the bridge of that, correct? Actually, uh, when you look at the REITs or some rather standardized investment, this is the solution because the large asset manager has a cost of opportunity to try and start looking at the market. So instead of looking at one investment and looking through data room and due diligence on one single investment, then if, if there's a marketplace where comparable 
companies or comparable uh, objects, investment objects are actually proposed and they're standardized, then you can actually maybe count on a rating like the bond market with Star and Bulls and Fitch and, and Moody's. Then it makes the life of a big asset manager far easier because they can, for example, they can allocate uh, $10 billion by tranches of $100 million each on 100 different comparable um, investments. And then they have a very diversified portfolio and the risk return is decreasing dramatically, of course. And then they can accept much lower rates of return on one single investment because the overall portfolio is so diversified that it's actually less risky. So standardization is key for large asset management companies to try and invest in other things than uh, indices. You're right. Talk about some of the trends and, again, from the lens of a, an institutional investor going direct uh, and the, the pros and cons of that, uh, the appeal of investing in real assets, and also you know, the geographies of where you're investing. What, what are some of the, the things at, at play that are considered? Well, a, a company which is the largest asset manager in Europe uh, is definitely going to invest worldwide. That's uh, for sure in all the sectors in the world. So you have an allocation. The asset allocation is actually revised on a, on a quarterly or annual basis. And you decide to put like 1.5% on the retail sector in Asia. And then you have to find out to deploy that money. So deploying that money is going to be either private equity, but an asset manager won't like it very much because money is trapped for seven, eight years. And you're not the manager anymore. I mean, the private equity general partner is managing the money. So you look for direct assets. You look for, for example, building infrastructure, things that are going to make a difference with the direct investment. You need a lot of expertise to do that. And you cannot have all the expertise of all the countries and all the sectors. So that is a big contradiction of managing large amounts of, of money and try to be global. And uh, you also have a turnover. So let's say you deploy all of money with a team that is specialized in real estate in Asia, and then they go and you find yourself with it's impossible to follow what you've invested in. So you don't like it too much. So standardization, uh, like be able to, to buy things, uh, you know, like uh, companies or concepts that you find like 1,000 of them diversified by very different parameters, but comparable and build a diversified portfolio is actually what matters the most for uh, deploying this kind of money. So it's the reason why when I, when I, I moved from uh, Elliott Advisors, where I was actually very specialized on uh, making deals. Uh, I actually realized that uh, there was only one solution for large asset managers to invest in oil and gas and make it cleaner at the same time as make money. And it was through the creation of an exchange like CSA uh, Enterprise. No, that's excellent. We'll, we'll get into SLU in a little bit. One other thing that you've talked a lot about to me, you know, off the record and in meetings is about the standardization of the structure and how the asset structuring side of, of the investment world is so important. You know, what I've learned over the years is having something that's ring-fenced makes it way more investable. And I, I guess kind of what I'm alluding to is really the boxes that need to be ticked by an investor. And so when something needs to be one-off and negotiated and there's lawyers involved and there's advisors involved, a lot, of, a lot of times that drag and brain damage can kill deals and, and they die in the vine. Um, but if the structure is, is put in place to where it's easier to deploy money on a more regular basis and at a, a larger scale, that simplifies life. That goes in hand in hand with what SIU is doing. But just, I know you have, uh, you and, and Mark Samwell on the board have extensive experience in asset structuring in, in lots of sectors, right? Yeah, well, take an example of... Uh... 
futures or derivatives market. It's very regulated. It's also completely organized from uh, the way it works. So you sign an ISDA, and then uh, as a participant to this market, you know that if you buy futures, you're going to have margin calls. All that is calculated in the way that there is no way a participant is not going to be credible or, or, or have solvability. So this is the framework of automatic settlement and structuring that is going to trigger more liquidity because you don't need like five lawyers and 10 months to actually reach uh, an agreement on a very specific joint operating agreement. You don't do that. You actually, if you have a standardized set of documents that everybody can rely on, they can change over time. But at the moment in time, they are standardized and nobody has to actually negotiate all that to enter a deal. So that's part of the structuring of what makes a large institution able to commit a lot of money very quickly. So up to this point, we've talked about your background with Amundi and, and Elliot, but you have been running an oil company the last seven years and SLU Enterprise is another uh, portfolio company. You'll have a, a hydrogen company. Um, this is all being backed by pension fund investors in, in the UK. And these investors in particular have never invested in oil and gas before. Um, they have climate emergency mandates on the capital they can put to work. I think you have a really unique perspective and understanding of what European investors and climate emergency investors are up against, how they think, what, what rules they have to play by. Walk me through your education the last decade around that and no pun intended, the current climate on that. Well, that's a that's a two hours discussion. <laughs> but let, let's start. Uh, first of all, when we started six years ago, we proposed pension funds to uh, help us demonstrate you could produce oil and gas in Texas in a cleaner way because of venting, flaring, positive emissions, use of water, fracking, you know, chemical products, and xylene for paraffin for conventional wells. All that from our eyes of today is a bit of a disgrace. But I mean, six years ago, it was a challenge for us to say, yes, we can change it and still produce oil and gas. So we got $120 million from uh, pension funds, acquire a small field in uh, Loving County and demonstrate that we could uh, make a difference. Six years down the road, uh, the scope one emission has been reduced by 91%, uh, scope two by 75%, even the scope three is lower. So it's a it's a success because we've, we've made decisions to not vent when... Uh, for example, your pipeline is down and you have a well-producing oil, producing oil and gas. If you don't produce your gas, you're going to have to stop production of oil and you don't want to do that. If it's a gas-only well, you might actually lose it and not be able to start it again after, after shutting it down. So this is a, a little of fresh on, on venting. And um, first of all, what I'd like to say is when we started marketing six years ago, we would see lots of pension funds telling us no fossil fuel policy. We, are, believe it, we believe in energy transition. There's no way we can invest in oil and gas. It's an energy of the past, and we are looking towards like new energies. Now it's completely different because it's the same pension fund I've understood that without oil and gas, and especially oil and gas that can be produced rapidly in a clean way, there's no energy transition. Price of energy can become so expensive, and today is a good day to, I mean, sorry for what happens in Ukraine and and. and we have friends over there and we bought some technologies from Odessa. So this is, I mean, if, if we can say something about uh, this, this is an horrible situation for these people. But um, Russian oil is probably going to be embargoed for a few years. And uh, we believe that uh, that's a, an additional factor. That illustrates the fact that this oil and gas 
is necessary to this overall equation because if uh, you let Angola and Liberia produce oil and gas and the venting is not going to be like 2.5%, like in the Permian Basin, it will be 20%. And that's a real disaster for the environment because methane is uh, between 25 and 40 times more polluting than CO2. In the last decade, that's something that gets talked about in receptions over drink amongst our peers in oil and gas. And it, it, it very much, I looked at it as being falling on deaf ears. But you're saying institutions in Europe in particular, because that's your you know, immediate access, have started to think that way. That if you abandon the oil and gas industry, barrels of oil will still go to market regardless because it's needed. Those will be dirtier barrels. So incentivize responsible producers to produce it cleanly. And they've started to see the, the social unrest and some of the fallout. You know, Some co- countries in Europe have reverted to coal production. So some of that has kind of led, led to this shift in thinking? Yes. Yeah, actually, in, in a world where uh, demand is limited to a certain amount, if there's more clean oil, there's going to be less dirty oil. At, at, it's all a price equation, but if you're able to produce clean oil cheaper than dirty oil, then you can have only clean oil. So it's a, ba- a matter of subsidizing the cleanest guys so that they can do a better job, and then you cut off any ground of you know, success for the most polluting. So this is a notion what, which uh, Carbon Tracker and, and, and Marco Panel have developed over the last 10 years. It's called the stranded asset notion. If you're right now putting together a project of investing $7 billion in a project starting in 2029 and that requires a $40 per barrel price over 30 years, you're very likely to never see that project economic. You know now that probably oil won't be $40 within 30 years. It might be 300 within three years, but it might not be over 40 in within 30 years. So your project is already a waste of money. It's a stranded asset. So that is a notion that is very popular amongst uh, the participants of the CA 100 plus. It's exactly, I think, 655 participants and more than 300 billion, a trillion under management. All the asset management in the world look at this uh, way to you know, compare companies between themselves and the one that will not respect this notion of stranded asset will be blacklisted or are already blacklisted. So the world is changing rapidly. And, but what Carbon Tracker doesn't say, actually, they say the country, they say that an asset which is clean, that is actually the, the capex is deployed in one year and the production is actually only taking three, four years with an immediate return on investment, that is not a stranded asset. And this asset is typically the shale, oil, and gas in the Permian Basin. So you see, not every activist, you can call them, for a climate emergency is going to be against oil and gas. And this is the biggest change I've seen in the last five years. Hey guys, I wanted to take a quick break from the conversation to say thank you to Opportune LLP for sponsoring our Minerals and Royalties podcast. As a leading global energy business advisory firm, Opportune is well positioned to provide world-class technical, financial, and operational capabilities to minerals and royalties companies. Whether it's back office outsourcing, resource and reserve definition, land due diligence and administration, GIS mapping, valuation work, data and system integration, financial reporting, tax advisory, or buy and sell side assistance, Opportune LLP has got you covered. For more information, please visit www.opportune.com. Is your team interested in de-risking their underwriting on minerals acquisitions? What about maximizing the value of your minerals on exits? Source Energy is pioneering energy intelligence 
to help you stop guessing when, where, and if wells are going to be drilled and completed on your minerals. If you're interested in tracking daily frac crew activity, buying white space before permits are filed, buying permitted acres just before the rigs show up, buying minerals at permit pricing when drilling is in progress, buying ducts with imminent flush production, or maximizing the value of your permits and ducts anytime you exit your minerals, then please visit www.sourceenergy.com minerals or email info at sourceenergy.com for a free demo. I also want to say thank you to Noble Royalties, who's been a leader in the minerals and royalty space since 1997. With the ever-changing landscape of the energy industry, Noble's team urges EMPs, mineral funds, and private families to rethink how they buy and sell their minerals. Noble's legacy and experience will assist in delivering effective solutions to EMPs and private owners alike on how to best maximize their mineral ownership in this ever-changing market. If you're interested in having a conversation about what might be the best solution for your company, fund, or family, then please reach out to Chase Morris at cmorris at nobleroyalties.com or Shannon Manor at smanor at nobleroyalties.com. Talk to me a little bit about the rules that they have to play by. So Article 6, Article 9, Article 8, what, what are the, the stipulations around that? And then when we have meetings with, with producers, you talk about how SLU fits in the, the investable box for these climate emergency investors. And you, you kind of break it down simply on ways they can invest in energy transition. And one is to invest in dirtier industries to help minimize emissions. And that's kind of where incentivizing clean production fits under. But break down because this is the, the world you you know, live, breathe, and, and eat every day. Um, just the details of it. Uh, would love for you to, to expand upon that. So Article 9, Article 6, Article 8, et cetera. Okay, so um, we're getting into the nitty-gritty of the regulator of asset management in Europe, which has put together, uh, it's called the SFDR decision tree. And it's all about reducing the largest emissions of CO2 through proper governance and leveraging new technologies and processes. This is uh, the key point with the SFDR decision tree. Article six question is that it integrates uh, sustainability risks. If no, then uh, you're not eligible to become an ESG product and you cannot market it as such. Article nine question is uh, that it has sustainable investment objective and article eight is that it promotes environmental or social characteristics. So very precise questions with a list of answers which are authorized and some which are not. And all the asset managers in Europe right now need to go through this questioning before their fund gets a label, and the label is either you are ESG and green, or you're not. So that is a very structured um, regulation world. Not all investors obey that, because if you look at the, at the hedge fund, they probably don't need to respect that. But someone, a firm like which is actually marketing and, and raising funds for mutual funds, will have to stick to that. And uh, now you were talking about uh, another point, which is, you have many ways to uh, participate to the, the environment and, and climate emergency. You could actually retire dirty assets but in early way, like very dirty refineries or dirty coal plants have already been uh, removed from the supplier list. Then you can make dirty cleaner. And that's very interesting. Exactly. The biggest potential for uh, reducing emissions is typically you reduce venting by making sure you have a, a non-venting engineering of a field. And this field is going to reproduce oil and gas. And the previous field, which was engineered in a bad way, is going to be just scrapped. So the make dirty cleaner is where we believe there's a lot of potential. Then you can actually build 
low emissions, like you could have a, a, a new uh, solar panel farm or wind turbines. And you have also another way to reduce, uh, to, to, re to reach the net zero by 2030 is a change of uh, behaviors and try and re reduce demand. So on the, I think it's a losing argument on uh, reducing demand because Howard Newman, who he was the founder of Pinebrook, and years ago, I got to know him through Energy Council. He said, as a society, we've gotten significantly better at reducing emissions, but by the increase in people in the world and the growth of GDP across countries, as we've gotten more industrialized, when you do the math, we're still emitting more per capita GDP, and we're, we're going to continually lose that race. So um, I, I think other, other things need to happen, right, to move the needle more. So I, I think it, it's all super interesting. I mean, now kind of paying the picture, we're going to get into the SLU. I, I wanted to, I want people to understand, you know, everyone says, oh, capital's leaving the space. You know, why? And, and what are they faced with? And, and what are the trends? And so I thought you can uniquely bring that perspective. Now I want you to put on your, your oil CEO hat. You, you enter the Permian Basin six, seven years ago. You come from Europe, different perspective, different career. You've invested in multiple industries. And so that the management 101, right, is to bring in a new person to your board or to your team every year for different perspective. Because different perspective can really open up for innovation and, and difference in strategy. And you don't get tunnel vision as a, as a company. And I think for the most part, you could argue that oil and gas at times and in certain perspectives has tunnel vision. And so I think you were bringing a different perspective. Your board members, uh, you know, Michael Bonalumi brings a very uh, credible trading background to the table. And you guys looked at how inventory was being heavily discounted in EMP's portfolios. And you said, well, that doesn't make sense. You know, they bought this acreage for a certain price and now it's almost being discounted to zero. And you just saw a lot of the different dynamics at play and we're able to bring your expertise and your track records to cobble this idea, idea together, which is SLU Marketplace. So bring me back to day one. What kind of drove you to, to come, you know, articulate, bring this idea together and articulate it to where, where it is today? Well, first of all, uh, in the Loving County, you have uh, almost all of the Permian producers, which are a bit of fakers. So we've started holding leases that were actually at risk because there was only one well holding the lease, producing half a barrel per day. For background for everyone, the operating company that you run specializes in shallow production, reinvigorating wells, bringing, you know, shut-in wells back online. So you're not uh, an unconventional uh operating company, drilling horizontals, just want everyone to know as you kind of explain this story, that you have an IP around disruptive technologies to operate shallow wells at very low cost economically with an ESG angle lowering scope one, scope two, scope three emissions, right? So to continue, just want to paint that picture. Great, thanks. Uh, Iskandia Energy Operating was crazy to actually uh, implement this uh, workovers, combining several technologies some of them would not never work alone, but if you combine them, you end up having good results. The objective was to uh, be environmentally friendly, have the lowest possible LOEs, which you achieve because you increase production. If you double production, then of course the LOEs are actually lower. So we reactivated uh, 51 wells in the county and then uh, Noble came to see us and said, great, now you're holding my leases. 
And I thought I was going to have to drill them to before selling them. But now I can spare a lot of money. Could you please do it on other of my leases where my, my engineer says we have to drill because wells cannot be saved? So we made a deal with them, which was we're going to sell you an option to keep your leases through our production. And uh, you're going to sell us the field. And we would like the price of the option to be the same price as the field. So it was a field producing approximately 40 barrels per day with no, almost no PNA liability. So we bought it uh, for one dollar, and we sold the option to keep the leases so that Noble could sell their rights to Chevron. And then uh, the field is now producing more than uh, 170 barrels per day, and it didn't cost us more, more than 500,000 bucks to do that. That is because we've uh, gained experience at uh, reactivating these wells and operating them in a, in a, in a lean way. But that opened a completely different discussion with the Permian operating companies, which was with the five years rules and your 50 years of reserves, your balance sheet is completely undervaluing two things. First of all, your reserves are worth much more than what they are booked for in your balance sheet. And secondly, you have a lot of optionality. You could develop Wolfgang A or C, or it's actually your operating staff which is deciding what to do, but this optionality is not monetized. And uh, knowing what has happened already in the midstream and downstream business where all optionalities are completely monetized, we thought there was an opportunity there to bring a bit of uh, capital market intelligence to the way the oil and gas properties are valued and financed for the CapEx and development. Excellent. Well, what does SLU stand for? What is an SLE? Let's, let's break down the basic parameters, right? The rating, the standardized JOA, what a unit is and looks like, oh, all that. And we always thought like it was a bit crazy to have this dollar per acre in terms of assessing deals. And uh, so I went to see Ryder Scott and said, why don't we do something a bit smarter like volume instead of surface? And that was the initial idea that uh, an SLU would be 1 million barrel. I don't want to talk about reserves, okay? It's, it's uh, resources that could have some value one day for someone. If you look at my background, I've been in the mining industry for the first 20 years of my life. And in mining, a resource is there. You measure because you have to drill. And when you drill, the gold is not getting out alone. There's no pressure. Okay, so you drill to measure, and then you have a jolt assessment of the mining resources. And you know that the metal is there. Now, whether you can manage to get it economically or not is not part of the reserves calculation. In the oil and gas, it's the contrary. You actually can calculate as reserve only what you think you can economically produce at a certain time. So, and that's varying a lot depending on the price of commodities and the cap and, and the capex and everything. So we thought we would like to come back to a more mining definition of resources, which is what is there that can be one day produced. And Ryder Scott, we, we met with uh, Dean Rich and Gwali Ramirez and Larry Connors and uh, we thought they would laugh at us and tell us we were crazy. So we told them it's a crazy idea, isn't it? And three or four meetings after, they said, it's not crazy at all, and we're on board. So what we ended up doing is uh, delineating a standardized unit of surface, like it's a drilling unit, almost like two sections. These two sections is going to be uh, analyzed by Ryder Scott, and they will come up with a number of million barrel resources with a rating for commerciality and a rating for quality. So this is, uh, for example, you could have a, a super location, which is a two sections, adjacent sections, with 55 SLUs, which means 55 million barrel, and 25 would be rated AA, and 30 would be rated BA, for example. So that is uh, the way we have actually structured this standardization, and there's no need for any generalist investors to 
go and open a data room. They don't need to go through all the calculation of the type curves and everything and the work control. They don't have to do that at all. If, if writer's call says it's an A, B, then it means something. Going back to the beginning of the conversation, now put your asset manager hat back on. And the analogy always when you start introducing this concept is when, when a large investor wants to invest in the bond market, they don't go through in, in painstaking detail the financials of each company. They see, oh, Moody said it's a, it's a AAA rated bond. I'm going to put X amount of capital into those and then in, into junk bonds and to, to Bs or whatever. Again, why you decide to put this rating onto it, explain how that benefits an investor ultimately just to translate for everyone means more capital comes into Permian for development, right? That's the whole goal of all this. Yeah, but also the other way around, like uh, when you're large asset manager and, and this investment in, in oil and gas is either done through listed companies. And when you see the track record of these companies from a shareholder value point of view, it's not been great. So they probably wouldn't touch some of these oil and gas companies uh, at all. They wouldn't buy the shares, they wouldn't buy the debt. But having an access to this uh, technologies and know-how and expertise and uh, also the fact that the resources are there so to enable these investors to access this market in a way which is compatible with their size is objective with the SLE enterprise so uh, when you buy a bond and you want to buy a, a BB plus bond you're going to have a remarkable homogeneity of yield the, the yield is going to be between 2.2% and 2.6% for a BB plus at the moment in time and therefore you know that maybe you're going to look for the higher yield or lower yield, but what you buy is very comparable. So this is what the rating is doing. You don't need to survey the company. You don't need to meet with the management. If you buy a BB plus, it's a BB plus. Now you have a lot of trading because sometimes the BB plus is almost the same rate as the AA minus. And therefore you can arbitrage and say, this is uh, because everybody's looking for BB plus now. So it's very expensive. I don't have a good rate. I'm going to go and get a different kind of uh, maturity or a different kind of rating. So you still have a lot of arbitrage possibilities in the market, which is rated even more. If you compare, um, I mean, there are some companies which would say, I, I don't want to be operating uh, if I don't have at least 95% work interest because my value, my wealth, my expertise is my DNA. I want to keep this expertise I have to leverage my, my income, my return by having the maximum working interest on what I operate because I operate very well. Now let's compare an asset manager like Amundi. Amundi tries to get third-party money and manage it for a fee and a success fee. And if Amundi was suddenly saying, I'm not going to want this 1.2 trillion anymore, I'm going to manage my own money. The balance sheet is like 5 billion. So let's manage my 5 billion and make it like so good that I'm going to double it every year. So I'm going to make 5 billion. Whereas Amundi with a 1.2 trillion at 1% or 0.5%, they make a fortune every year in fees. So the model of asset management, which is deploying my expertise for third parties to benefit from my expertise and I leverage that, is what we believe is going to happen in oil and gas. The current model of an ENP looks to me a little bit like a dinosaur. Excuse my French here, but you have a very heavy balance sheet, which is not even monetized properly. The optionality is not monetized. You have like out of the five years rules, the puts are worth almost nothing. And because of this very heavy balance sheet that makes that you only want to operate your own acres, the return to investors is very low. Now think of the same very capable operating company that operates for third parties, like non-op non investors, but is compensated for the performance through a, a financial performance that in a 
in the private equity world, people call it a, a carried interest. You know, the, the private equity model is you get 2% a year plus 20% above of the return above an 8% other rate. Well, the same kind of thing applied to the oil and gas industry is what we've done in the SAD enterprise. There's a financial incentive and the oil and gas company 2.0 could have very small balance sheet, but operating like so well in the lean way that they make a fortune every year operating a super location for everybody. And if you look at the asset management uh, in, the, in the way it's been uh, evolving in the last 20 years, because of this notion of managing third-party money, some specialities have actually emerged. So we believe oil and gas companies will also maybe specialize. Some would be so good at the spray berry in some zones, and they will actually be better than anybody else at producing from these zones. They know the rock better than anybody else. So we believe that might happen, less of a balance sheet exercise and more of an expertise exercise. The analogy you gave me that I thought just made tons of sense is in the hotel industry years ago, where a brand like Marriott stopped buying the infrastructure and the actual hotel building. Their brand and their IP around running a hotel profitably is what made them a company. You know, the disintermediation of investing, right? You, you start to separate the infrastructure investing side of it, and you had infrastructure investors investing in that. And then Marriott's you know, just using Marriott as an example, shrunk their balance sheet and was able to just operate more hotels um, and, and kind of expand what they do. And, you know, you shrink the balance sheet, you're able to weather, uh, you know, financial ups and downs a lot, a lot easier and, and you're more profitable. So that, that um, it made a lot of sense to me. And you can make that analogy to, to only guess, right? I mean, the hotel industry, the comparison goes a bit further. Because of uh, private equity real estate companies deciding to build these hotels for Mario, they wanted more of an incentive on the way it would be managed because they all, not only are buying walls, they also want a chunk of the, of the margin, if there's a margin. So they've actually wanted Mario to specialize brands. So you have Mario Bonvoy, you have different kind of styles of hotels now which are specialized to please uh, the, the traveler that wants to sleep overnight only, but is driving a long way, or the other one coming only for Saturdays to have fun with family. Different specialities financed by the same private equity, but it is where the expertise of the hotel group has actually been able to express itself far more clearly. So this is a good comparison as well for the style of oil and gas companies that might actually become more of a setting point. Yeah, no, the, the whole key, and, and I'll break down really the structure of what SLU is getting at here, because we're talking about higher themes. But yeah, it's the idea is to create a framework where capital markets incentivizes performance and behaviors. And that can be from you're a better operator in the Sprayberry or the Wolf Camp A. It could be you have cleaner operations. And instead of this kind of convoluted message from investors saying, you have to be more uh, environmentally friendly and now the capital is leaving the space and you're punished. And yeah, you know, I, I was just, Stefan, I was at a workshop last night and someone, it, it, was a, it was around reducing methane emissions and cleaning up operations. And it was a natural gas focus, but someone raises their hand and they said, what is the, how do you know when there's an ROI on an investment in, in these practices? And the panel kind of chuckled and they didn't really have a straight answer. The, what they really kind of alluded to was you need to invest in things that, you know, will, will are today in your operations improve the economics of your bottom line, or B, you're preparing for the one day when there's 
policies and, and regulations in place like uh, carbon taxes and you, you're doing all these things to prepare for the worst for tomorrow, essentially, and so that you're not caught with your pants around your ankle. What would be great, better and which I think is so brilliant about SLU is today, capital markets will financially incentivize you to do certain things because it's, it's transparent, it's standardized, you know, that's the key, right? Versus like going back to your example on EMPs have all this inventory and they have the optionality to develop it whenever they want. Well, that creates a lot of flexibility and, and maybe comfort at the management team level. That's the perception at least. But you'll explain here a little bit later in the conversation that massive amounts of option value are not being monetized. And that's actually more of a negative than having complete control. You could say the same thing uh, on the ESG front. If you have all this optionality and how you're going to tackle it and how you're going to approach it and you can do whatever you want with reporting, it's way better to have it transparent and standardized and you either get premium for it or you get punished for it because you're not following these standards. Let's start from the way we saw ESG. If you look at, at an operating company right now, an ENP producing 200,000 baht per day, they have legacy fields which are impossible to clean. They are not going to spend capex now economically on, on fields that were actually we started producing 10 years ago. So instead, if you look at a super location or like three, four different super locations, like between 1,280 acres and let's say 5,000, and you want to design a non-venting facility by the proper engineering and generators that would actually produce electricity so that uh, the gas is used for electricity purposes and not vented, then that's maybe a 20 to 30% additional cost when you engineer and you develop. But at the end of the day, you for sure have a demonstrable example that that company can do a very good job. And then if the reporting is accurate, and you need to make sure that this reporting is not like, oh, yeah, we fly a drone every year to check our emissions. If it's the reporting with blockchain bad and anybody opening for venting, I mean, everything goes, you know, red and, and it's disclosed to, to investors, then it's a serious undertaking by an EMP. And if these superlocations are, have a mandate for non-venting, then they're going to compare to other superlocations trading on the same platform that are actually venting or not disclosing any, any statistics. So there are going to be two advantages for the ENP that puts this uh, super location. First of all, there's going to be a premium, and the premium is going to maybe be much higher in terms of value for the ENP than the 30% additional cost for engineering the non-venting. Break down why there's a premium. Yeah, rarity. If, if investors in Europe, through the decision trees, and people like uh, Carbon Tracker, Mark Campanello, say this is eligible because it's cleaner oil than dirty oil. So yes, you do a good job at buying to that and it's eligible to your mandate. Then you are going to want to buy that, but there's not that many available compared to the trillions available for investment. So if more people want to buy that kind of um, shares in this super location, which are clean, then the prices are going to be high. So now look at the rate of return. If you are looking for investment in truly energy transition investment, I'm telling you there's none available. Because there's no, so you could invest in hydrogen, but hydrogen, it's actually more expensive to transport hydrogen 100 miles than producing it. So there's a big question about hydrogen. Everything believes it to be a solution. So any investment that you could make in uh, solar or wind is going to yield a 3 to 4 5% maximum rate of return because everybody wants to invest in that. 
and there's still an execution risk and a permitting risk. So on a superlocation for reputed ENPs, which have undertaken to actually not pollute and a non-venting uh, engineering that makes sense and have reported three or four quarters already of non-venting, very, very low emissions, this is extremely valuable. And the rate of return could be 5 or 6%. The well-head yield at 110 barrels is probably 120%. From 120% of the well-head to 6% on the superlocation, what has got to increase in terms of valuation? The land, the rights. So the working interest of a non-developed superlocation will actually go through the roof. Instead of $30,000 per acre, it could trade at two or $300,000 and still have a 6% yield for energy transition uh, aligned investors. So we're talking about something really. We're talking about providing to investors that are longing to invest in clean, less dirty. Okay, So that's still a way to reach... Uh, net zero by 2030 and you exactly 40% of uh, the way from where we are to net zero by 2030 is actually uh, making dirty cleaner so that's exactly what investors will look for and this means tons and tons of money for this ENP that will actually try and demonstrate that they can do it but they wouldn't be able to do it on their own operations because of the legacy asset where it's not economic yeah the, the analogy you gave me um you know a couple of years ago was if the mandate was to to Ford, for instance, Ford, the car manufacturer, to say, hey, we want you to make every single car you've produced in the last 80 years compliant to today's emission standards. Well, it's impossible. The cars that were made in 1940, they're out on the road. God knows where, who owns them. But if you said, on the contrary, going forward from you know, March 22 onwards, we want you to follow these emission standards and it can be done. And that's the same analogy with the SLU is that it's a clean development plan, which is a, a 1280. So it's it's building the house brick by brick instead of trying to clean the entire house uh, that, that's been there for 60 years. So, you know, that that's that's one comment. Thank you for breaking down kind of the premiums on ESG and how it really works with the institutional investors. I think one other thing to point out, going back to your point on scarcity, is that they're willing to pay these extreme premiums as a signal to incentivize operators to say, hey, this is actually worth our time. If you look at a company, an operating company today, they've invested the dollars into the engineering designs to execute these non-venting facilities. But you had mentioned kind of roughly 20, 30% increase in CapEx. Without a financial reward, you're not going to do that today. I, I think institutional investors based on scarcity and also the, you know, the margin they have on what they can pay a premium on to still hit their return thresholds will enable them to pay enough of a premium to make that increase in capex costs justifiable right and over time costs will go down market will get more efficient but um yeah i think that's kind of just i want to summarize the basic gist of of how those dynamics will play out on the esg side you know the other thing we'll, we'll get into in a little bit is the price discovery on esg efforts and the read across on an entire portfolio so some, an emp company doesn't have to create slus for their entire portfolio they can do it on on a handful of the acres within their portfolio. And then explain the read across methodology from an investor standpoint, because you've done that in the past. And so I think it's better to hear from you. Okay, so the read across is an asset management notion. When a one superlocation with an ESG non-venting design and engineering trade at a 100% premium to one which is actually polluting, then an ENP which would have demonstrated its ability, know-how, and willingness to do it and report properly, will certainly have a read across on all of the reserves, which could be developed and turned into superlocation, and they will be given by analysts 
the same kind of premium or half of the premium because they still have to do it. So the read across on the balance sheet would be tremendous. And we see that all the time. This is the way investors are thinking. So what we're trying to do there is trying to bring capital market intelligence to valuation of oil and gas assets. This is what we're doing. Hey guys, I wanted to take a quick break from the conversation to say thank you to Noble Royalties, who's been a leader in the minerals and royalty space since 1997. With the ever-changing landscape of the energy industry, Noble's team urges EMPs, mineral funds, and private families to rethink how they buy and sell their minerals. Noble's legacy and experience will assist in delivering effective solutions to EMPs and private owners alike on how to best maximize their mineral ownership in this ever-changing market. If you're interested in having a conversation about what might be the best solution for your company, fund, or family, then please reach out to Chase Morris at cmorris at nobleroyalties.com or Shannon Manor at smanor at nobleroyalties.com. Need energy industry management experience at your fingertips? Opportune LLP, a leading global energy business advisory firm, has the capabilities needed to overcome your minerals and royalties team's technical, operational, and financial challenges. To learn more, search Opportune's podcast E2B Energy to Business on Apple and Spotify Podcasts, where Opportune examines emerging financial and technology trends and provides a broad perspective on ways to stay ahead, create opportunities, and execute market strategies. For more information, please visit www.opportune.com. Predicting operator behavior is the name of the game in the mineral space, but using permits and relocations alone to do this is not enough. Detecting well pads and frack ponds in order to see which permits are on the rig schedule, discount permits that won't ever be sputted, and determine which ducks are next up on the frack schedule is key to de-risking your underwriting. By using satellite imagery and AI, Source Energy shows oil-filled well pad construction before permits are filed, shows frack pond filings even before the crew arrives, and shows pinpoint frack crew movements daily, so you can get ahead of drilling activity and completions. If you're interested in leveraging this technology to revolutionize your ground game, then please feel free to visit www.sourceenergy.com minerals or email info at sourceenergy.com for a free demo. Excellent. So I'm going to very quickly break down the fundamental parts of an SLE. What, what is a superlocation entity? It's a, it's a 1280 contiguous block. The, the methodology behind that is that it's uh, maximum efficient drilling, right? Two, two monolaterals. The 1280 is wrapped in an LLC. The working interest and the royalty interest associated with that, with that acreage is then converted into shares in this LLC. Those shares will ultimately trade on uh, an SEC-regulated private exchange that SOU Enterprise is running. Now, going down to the units, the units have a standardized JOA. The JOA is going to do away with non-consents, and you can break that down a little bit further, but non-consents are being replaced by liquidity in this marketplace on this exchange. There's the Ryder Scott rating uh, on commerciality and quality, which you had mentioned already. There's a binding development plan that's submitted by the operator of record, which we classify as the prime operator. And I think from a capital market speak perspective, capital calls on drilling become strike prices on future options to drill oil and gas in the Permian, right? Um, well, this is the big difference between owning shares on the New York Stock Exchange where you never have any capital call. But if you're lucky, you are going to have dividend distributions. But in the SLU marketplace, 
you will have capital calls for the capex for the AFE. And that makes it very appealing for some insurance companies, for example, that want to deploy their cash flow. But that also means that there are lots of rules around in the marketplace, and we call them the standard. If one of the working interest owners that have actually seen his working interest converted into shares cannot pay a capital call, his shares in the SLE are going to be auctioned, and the money is going to be used to pay the capex, the share of the capex of the remaining shares he has. And if there's not enough buying power for the shares, they will be cancelled. So there are lots of rules around that we've actually worked out with Baker Bots and Riders Court and Grant Thornton that makes this SLE marketplace very safe as an environment for investors and also for EMPs. Yeah, I mean, the, the one thing I think uh, me is a kind of a minerals guy looks at the binding development plan being submitted and disclosed to investors as a, wow, you have visibility on future development with binding dates on when wells are going to be drilled. That's a game changer. Now, the knee-jerk reaction to that for the industry is going to be, why the hell would operators commit themselves to do that? I well, quickly tell people it's access to capital, but you know, expand upon that in more detail. Why would they give up that optionality as you well, if you give it for free, you should not. I agree with you. But if you manage to sell it for a decent price, when this optionality, which is maybe uh, optionality for like 2% of your inventory, maybe you should sell it because 2%, you have other options. So we're not telling anyone should actually sell 100% of the remaining optionality and then be locked to only developing what was actually sold as such uh, with a binding development plan. We're saying... Part of this inventory can be monetized in terms of optionality. So why would I do it now? If I'm a trader, or let's say an insurance company, and I see the price of energy is increasing because of energy transition, I'm afraid that that's going to trigger inflation. How do I hedge myself against inflation coming from the price of energy? Well, if I could actually buy some options on the price of oil in 2028, I'd, I'd love to do that. So what is an option on the price of oil 2028? Well, it's all in the rock that Oxy is going to develop in 2028 because Oxy is going to be around in 2028, way or another, very reputed, very skilled operating company. And if they say we're going to develop that section in 2028, investors will believe them. And then if the price per acre they get for this option is $100,000, which is not crazy from a Black and Scholes option calculation point of view, you have a six-year option on the most volatile community in the world. What is a six-year option worth on this? And what is the price of oil going to be in 2028? Maybe 300, maybe 40. So the way it works is that you have a binding development plan, which says I'm going to drill my wells in 2028. You don't have to sell many wells because it could change. It's not too binding either in a way that would paralyze and make things become pretty stupid. But you know it's going to be developed in 2028. You know, the cost of, of developing that is, is going to result in, a, in capex and then capital calls. So you'll have to pay this capital call. This is a strike price of the option. You'll have to pay that in order to be able to see the option exercised. And the value of the option is actually the sale of oil minus the operating cost, minus the LOEs and DNA. So that means that you have a real option on the margin that operating companies will make in 2028. And that's a tremendous option to have. So a trading company would also love to be positioned on that. Instead of having offtake, they would buy future production of oil and gas. So um, this is the reason why, uh, as an EMP, you would want to sell some of this optionality. 
Got it. Now, some basic questions that always come to mind. Well, Stefan, what if what if oil goes to negative 37 again? Are you committed to drill these wells? What happens if the operator doesn't drill the wells on time? What what are when you're looking at bigger bots, you know, rules and standards that they put in part for the marketplace? What are the some of the quick answers to those common questions? We've kept things uh, very simple. Uh, it's all down to financial conversation, which is quite easy to calculate. So um, you want to drill earlier because the price of oil is so high, you think the option value is worth nothing. Well, you pay the option value that you're destroying. If you drill it and complete in 26 instead of 28, well, you've erased two years of time value, but it might be compensated easily because you made so much more money than you saw that you're happy to compensate people. So it's all a... Well, it's always going to be a decision that you make knowing all the variables. You know, for example, when you are an hedge fund and you make an arbitrage, like selling a commodity and edging yourself with some other hedge, your hedge is never perfect. So sometimes you don't make money the way you wanted to make money on, on what you short on or long, but you make money because your hedge has gone the right way. So you just dissolve your position, not because you were right, but because it's made money. So that is an example of what's going to happen if Everybody agrees that we've made so much money. It's not the plan, but we make money. Well, okay. If, if 90% of the working interest owners are happy to do it, well, let's change the strategy. But it's going to be quite difficult to get 90% of the working interest owners to agree to destroy option value, for example. Yeah, I think what's hard for people to wrap their heads around when they don't have a, you know, a, a financial background or a background in options trading is the concept of a six-year option be more valuable than producing oil today and getting the cash flow distributions. And that's a very general example, but... Timmy, if I tell you that uh, where I live in the woodlands, the house is actually, the price has gone up 50% in two years, okay? And I give you the option to buy the same house right now, within six years at the price of today, or I give you the option to buy today at that price, what will you take? Of course, yeah. Six years, it could be double the price. So of course it's an option which is valuable and it's only a house, but look at oil, volatile. This not option of the more time you have, why is volatility the parameter, the main parameter of option valuation? It's because if a price moves, you have more chances in a time frame which is long to find a high price because this commodity moves. If it doesn't move at all, the volatility is 0.1% per year. Five years down the road, it's likely to be at the same level. The option is worth nothing. If it's moving by 100% every year, which is 100% volatility, what it means, then you're like it's likely that within six years, it could be 600% higher, and then you're going to make a lot of money. So this option, the, the longer the time frame and the larger the volatility of the underlying asset, the more valuable the option. It's very natural. So we've already kind of touched on the premium that the option value adds to the acre, the, the pricing of, of these SLUs. We'll coin traditional valuation methodology as a dollar per acre multiple. And so just to pick a round number, let's just say in a core area of the Delaware or Midland Basin, 30,000 acre for an undeveloped acre, right? Now mm -hmm. the components of an SLE are the Ryder Scott writing, the binding development plan, the option value and the emissions contract. Walk through at a high level because every every example is different. But why each of these things add hard dollar premiums, and you know the the methodology of the team on where we think an SLE can trade versus 
today's framework, which leaves out a lot of these things that we're adding to make it not only yes. easier for investors to invest, but that's a very good question. In terms of option, we there's something we haven't actually discussed yet is uh, the strategies that some uh, oil traders that are pressuring right now. You know what they do? They buy oil, they get oil delivered, and they store it. And then they store it because they want they, sh they know they have a projection that oil will be higher within let's say two years. So they have a storage cost is, which is approximately one dollar per barrel per quarter. That's a lot of money. And then if you think about an option like the one we provide, isn't it better to just leave the oil in the rock? As a storage, it's actually very convenient because it's free. And it, you don't have to actually change it over time because oil doesn't actually lose some of its quality over time. So this optionality also works for trading arbitrages where you want to store and sell a forward option on two other people. So with a long-term option, you can repackage short-term options. And this is what traders are going to do. It's retail options. So that there is no doubt in, my, in our mind that this optionality provided by binding development plan and delivery of this production in, in five, six, seven years, that's going to be very valuable. So now the calculation we have with the current volatility of this um, margin is that for a, for a, a super location that will be rated AA, which is approximately 50 million barrels to be produced, uh, it would add $40,000 per acre between 30 and 50. That's a lot of money. That's only optionality. That's for, for for a five years option. Yeah, and um, any kind of discount to the underwriting that would occur in today's valuation methodology, because you're uncertain about future development. Now that it's disclosed and transparent, that adds a premium in itself. Yeah, but we and we're not saying that uh, the first day the marketplace opens within nine months. We're not saying that the premium is going to kick in immediately because you, you're going to need some investors to look at the pricing methodology, look, the pricer is going to propose some bid ask. And at that level, uh, some investors will jump and dive in and agree, some will not. So it's going to take some time before this uh, option market is actually valued the way we think it should be valued. And it will eventually. I, I was uh, amongst the very first users of financial options as an asset manager. In the beginning, we had such an inefficiency that you could make 100% in three days. Now, the option market is so tight in terms of margin because it's all efficient. So this time, it won't take one. It would not take 20 years. It's going to take a few, maybe one year for this option pricing to actually be popular. Yeah. One other thing, too, that comes up is people go, okay, wow, this is interesting. I see an opportunity here. So this is an auction. I got to sell my stuff into this market. And we go, no, 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 no you're converting your existing interests into this framework. Whether you sell today or down the road is completely up to you. You know, that's the other thing. It's how companies can leverage SLU going forward. And there's a variety of different things. Stefan, you started building this uh, in a far different macroeconomic world. Uh, went through COVID, went through oil prices that went negative, and now they're over 100 there's value to be derived from this in all these ecosystems, which when you look back, it, it would have been easier if things were kind of calm and, and steady, but you said, okay, th this model actually has been stress tested in all these different environments. It's quite good uh, as you're building it. So yeah, we, had, uh, we had meetings with Ryder Scott and wondering how do we actually rate cheaper locations when the price of all is negative. And, <laughs> and we said, well, the option value will be the bulk of it. Because people, some people will be crazy enough to think that 18 months later, it's going to be trading at one with $10 per barrel. And these guys will be rich. 
you know, and, and this is what is beautiful is that as this option value you were saying like uh, 10 minutes ago, you don't understand why it's going to be more important to actually hold the development within two, three years and now, well, this is the answer. When all was uh, negative, you still would have bought this development, I guess. On this marketplace, everything is, is, is a notion of expected return. We shouldn't talk about valuation of uh, reserves or superlocation too much. What very much matters for investors is the notion of expected return. So what is my expected return when I'm, I'm Mundi and I've got $1 trillion to place? I accept anything between 3% with low risk and 20% with more risk. So this is called the risk return ratio. So if I've got an investment in a new restaurant, the risk ratio, reward ratio is going to be very high. But let's say I invest in 100 new restaurants. I have a pretty good idea that 20 will go bankrupt, 20 will become very good, and 60 will be average. So I'm diversifying my risks, and I end up having a portfolio which is actually accepting a lower overall risk of return. So instead of wanting for a, a risk which I think is 50% of losing my money in the next two years, if my risk is now only 5% of my money is going to be wasted and lost, then I can accept a 9% rate of return instead of 20 because my overall risk has decreased. So why do we want to standardize the new developments of the EMPs and the Permian? First of all, because it's the, big, the best land in the world, that the well control is just spectacular, and that it's where the engineering is going to be happening and it's going to be the cleanest production in the world. And it's also very short term between when you start drilling and when you actually have produced 70% of your resources for years. So the other thing too is, is it has the most benches of, of any resource in the world. And so the option value of all those benches just further proves into the, the concept we've been discussing, right? As an asset manager, I have the, this notion that if I can build, if I can buy into a diversified group of like 50, 100 things which are comparable, then I will expect a lower rate of return. This is what we're saying. If, if like we have 100 super location trading diversified by operating company, by time frame, by quality, by riders, cost, et cetera. Then a large investor will likely put $100 million in each of them and will be quite happy because the overall risk will be lower. So if instead of a, a drill co right now by specialized investors and an operating company would probably not want less than 50% rate of return is the way they're being negotiated right now. So from a uh, from 50% rate of return, which equates to $40,000 per acre, approximately, you go to maybe 10% rate of return, which is to be what large investor expects because of the diversification of risks, because it's standardized and you can buy many of them and there's no duty distance and they're rated. So that means the price of the acre should be five times more because you go from 50% expected return to 10. That is the beauty of diversification that makes that these assets are valued at a better level. But you need to agree to standardize, that's for sure. And you need to respect the rule of governance. And when you say binding, it's going to be binding. Not like the first drill codes that were negotiated 15 years ago, where it was a way for investors to actually get all the garbage. That's not the philosophy of the SLE enterprise. The reputation of ENPs is going to be really scrutinized and very important for them. Well, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. So one, one, of the, one of the questions is, well, how is this different than a drill code? And so for all intents and purposes, it's, it's a different way of you know, financing drill code type structures, but where drill codes don't have the transparency and where if an operator performs poorly, 
there aren't any serious repercussions in this market, your SL, SLEs would get significant discounts for being a bad actor as an operator. If, if you're looking at units with comparable ratings in comparable areas, and one operator is doing a worse job than the other, theoretically, the capital markets would give the better operator a higher premium. We believe the SFU enterprise marketplace could actually trigger some more uh, meaningful corporate activity. Like, for example, if on the same land, the same kind of rating, an operating performs twice better than another one, there will be a lot of pressure for the second one to sell its, its, its prime ownership to the, the, the good operating company. And that would translate into immediate uh, revaluation of the super location, which changed prime operator company. So there will be a lot happening because of this uh, reputation thing, which is going to be a, a very important parameter of this valuation. So we've addressed this, uh, the way diversification rating and no due diligence required is actually going to make the rate of return lower than when you buy into real oil and gas directly. I mean, you buy into asset, but it's actually in a standard way. The other matter is, of course, and we discussed it several times, is uh, the non-venting and ESG track record. Because as we mentioned, there is so much scarcity of very good projects with a real impact that if you have a real impact and you, for example, benefit from uh, the methane performance credit, MPC, which is actually, it's a new, it's not like a carbon credit, but it's actually granted by expensive and standard pools to operating companies that vent less than 0.1% of the annual production. That is a tremendous opportunity for superlocations, which are going to be non-venting because they will be like uh, non-venting plus. They'll be so non-venting, they will qualify for all this methane performance credit. And these so credits can be traded and, and monetized? Yes, they trade, they're monetized, and they'll be directly, because the LSE is transparent, they'll be directly attributed to the working interest owners through shares. So that is a tremendous way to actually make your superlocation trade at a premium because you've got distribution of methane credits every quarter. Yeah, and the other thing, I mean, again, speaking to the uh, the benefits of standardization, you know, standardizing the the carbon credits, and then you have you know certified natural gas. If if you start to certify natural gas production that's that's coming off of permian production down the road, that's another premium, um, and it yes. plays to the issue story. So. The standardization of all these things is good and paints a really good picture uh, as long as people um, you know, can kind of wrap their head around this framework. It's a, like you said, the goal is to make money. It may be different on, on day 100 than day one, but it gives you optionality to, to be able to make money in different ways, right? Well, I would say what we're discussing here is not new. I mean, it's, it's all, on all the commodities markets in the world. It's Well, talk it's about... so. This predates uh, even, I think, when I was born, but WTI, right? So WTI, Brent, these are all benchmarks that we come to accept as normal. There, You had talked about there was a time when the talks of standardizing a, you know, a benchmark for oil was crazy talk. People said there's, yeah. there's so many different parameters, you can never do it, and now it's been done. And so, you know, you kind of well, look at that and... Yes, uh, when... when uh the notion of standardizing the, the brand uh, and the WTI started, lots of people said, you cannot standardize all, you have so many different parameters and you know, some have sulfur and the API and it's going to be delivered where, and that is a crazy idea. You cannot do that. And now 
every crude in the world trades at a discount or premium to these reference, to these benchmarks. And the WTI, by the way, is overtaking the brand now and becoming the leading index in the world because of the Permian uh, crude. So um, we believe it's going to be the same. The only bit of uh, the upstream to uh, midstream downstream uh, businesses, which hasn't been completely standardized, is actually the exploration and production. I understand for exploration, it's not going to be standardized easily. But in the Permian, where you've got so much wealth control and so much understanding how to actually turn resources into cash flow, that could start being standardized. And this is what we're saying. Excellent. Well, in quick recap, I think ways companies can really leverage the SLU framework. It's, and we've talked about all these, you know, price discovery on long dated inventory. Actually, oh, I want you to, to speak to how, and, and this goes to the work that Grant Thornton's done, how you can take long dated inventory that's essentially getting discounted and written off. As soon as the SAD marketplace has enough liquidity and depth, which means that you can exchange without too much of a bid ask spread, you could actually exchange like $10 million a, a, a day, for example, that's a threshold of liquidity. Then it's eligible by audit, audit companies as a price discovery mechanism. So instead of deciding that your reserves are after the five years rules, they're not reserved anymore, they're contingent resources and they're valued at very little. You don't have the right to activate them in the balance sheet as reserves. Well, you just pour that into super location, they become financial instrument in the regulated market and you count them like swaps on your balance sheet. This is exactly what's going to happen. So another thing which we'd like to mention is uh, because we have been working for the last year with several ENPs at delineating super locations, we have identified extremely nice super locations that sometimes lack a little bit of liquidity, like one of the, the parties doesn't want to sign the JOA with non-consent and rather get out, you know, and find a buyer. So in order to make this a bit freer, we've actually decided to speak to our friends, investors, and we're putting together a vehicle, which we call a pre-IPO vehicle. If you think a super location being uh, listed on the marketplace is an IPO, then the pre-IPO is going to invest in super location being engineered and manufactured and created and delineated. And uh, we have a lot of opportunities right now to actually enable the marketplace to start. And we believe we're going to start with uh, at least 20 super locations, which will be ready to trade. So the first day is not going to be boring waiting for an IPO. The first day of trading, you'll have 20 different super locations that will be maybe not actively trading, but there will be a price discovery on all of them. And so this is what uh, BIM is doing as a financial group. We're creating a marketplace but we also believe it's so interesting that we are actually putting our own money and our friends' money into buying into this location before, before they go on the marketplace. Well, I'd, I'd love for you to close it out. Tell me how you think the SLU is a gateway to oil company 2.0, as you call it. If I was an operating company right now, oil, oil company 2.0 with a very lean balance sheet, I would actually buy acres i would work at like everybody does that all the time okay so gathering find a, a way to have a 1280 and then you find an operating company and you you drill and complete and then you cash flow but i would not do the full cycle i would only delineate it's more like a land work i would delineate them convince everyone that okay you don't care to have you for a price of how much you want for it because i want you to stay in here because we're going to find liquidity together in the marketplace, you can sell the marketplace if you want. You'll have a much better price. So aggregate these 
in the shape of a superlocation, understanding that this SAU is a currency. And then when it goes on the marketplace, you can use that currency if you want, but that would accelerate transactions. And this is what I would do. I would actually generate as much business as possible, just listing SAUs and pocket in the premium of this marketplace. Well, very good. Well, Stefan, thank you. Uh, it's It's been a pleasure to be a part of this, this ride and looking forward to growing it together. Thanks for your time this afternoon. And, um, you know, if anyone is interested in this, by all means, reach out to me and we'll, we'll get a meeting set up with Stefan and the team. But uh, in the interim, Stefan, many thanks for your time and have a great weekend. Thank you, Tim, and you as well. Hey, guys, thanks for listening to this episode of the podcast. I hope you enjoyed. The Minerals and Royalties Authority is a specialist advisory firm focused exclusively on the minerals and royalty space for oil and gas and renewables. With our leading content platform and thought leadership, our team is continually looking to bring awareness to the mineral space in order to help investors and companies buy and sell deals and form new partnerships. If you're interested in scheduling a call to explore ways the Minerals and Royalties Authority can help your team through our offering of consulting services for business development, marketing, capital raising, and A&D, then please send me an email at tim at mineralsauthority.com. Also, please don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and be sure to share these episodes with anyone in your network that you think would enjoy. Thanks, and see you next time.